0: Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is brought to you by an incredible, affordable, free market alternative to that expensive, high-deductible health insurance that you've been struggling with called Health Excellence Select. And instead of going on and on and on about how great this program is, I'm just going to direct you to last week's Monday episode of this program, episode number 378. You can find that by heading over to lionsofliberty.com 378. You can also head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health to learn more. And I will also post a link in today's show notes, which you can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash 379. You do not want to wait around continuing to pay super high medical bills when there's such an amazing alternative waiting for you called Health Excellence Plus. So again, check it out by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Row, 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 row. I'm trying out new roars this week. I don't know what I'm doing, guys. I don't know what I'm doing. I just sit down in front of a microphone and start making animal noises and hope that liberty ends up at the end of this thing. You know how I roll, okay? Because you have arrived once again at the OG, the original. That is our new tagline. That's right. The original libertarian variety show podcast out there. There are a lot of shows that have expanded their feeds out there. Some good friends of ours. But... We're the first ones to do it. We're the first ones to provide you a variety show format. Of course, you get me every single Monday hosting great interviews like the one you're going to hear today, as well as roundtable discussions in the form of libertarians and grooms drinking liquor. We'll be doing that again next week for our annual Liberty Naughty or Nice special. So we look forward to that one. And, of course, foul mouth, funny man Brian McWilliams brings you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty over on Electric Liberty Land every single Wednesday, while John Odermatt wraps things up on Fridays with his incredibly riveting and inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You get all these podcasts for the price of one, folks, and that price is still free. So please do hit that subscribe button now. Of course, if you want to give us money, you are more than welcome to join our Patreon over at Patreon.com. Slash Lions of Liberty. If you just can't get enough with our three-show week format, we have so much extra content in there, including bonus sections with guests taking questions from listeners, including segments with Tom Woods, Dave Smith, Julie Browski, Scott Horton, and so many more, as well as, of course, the Conspiracy Corner podcast, the Degenerate Gamblers Podcast, the League of Liberty podcast. We just keep them coming and coming and coming. And of course, you don't want to miss Brian McWilliams and his South Park recaps that he does with Dan Smott's inspiring more and more rage every day. Every single week so a plethora of available content to you again you can find all this over at patreon.com slash lions of liberty enough hawking all right man let's head to today's show All right, my guest today is an author, columnist, and a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Playboy, the Washington Post, and many, many, many other publications over the years. He is the author of ten books, including Public Policy, Hooligan, and Attention Deficit Democracy. He is currently smoking a cigar, I believe, on the other end of this call. I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Jim Bovard. Jim, are you ready to roar? Well, I'm just a
1: shy country boy, but I'll try.
0: Now, Jim, I want to start off because one one snippet that I, I will say right now, I, I stole this directly from your website, and I wanted to start out addressing this because it was maybe one of my favorite biographical talking points that I've ever read about a guest uh, d- you know, doing background research, but I'm just going to read this. It says, his writings have been publicly denounced by the Chief of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Secretary of Labor, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, the Postmaster General, and the Chiefs of the U.S. International Trade Commission, Drug and... Enforcement Administration, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, as well as by many congressmen and other malcontents. So, Jim, over your great career as a writer, how have you come under such ire from so many agencies and federal government officials?
1: Well, I've written about things that they didn't want people to hear about. So, you know, I'd dig into their records, I'd go through their files, I would try and uh, tie things together. Because there's so much BS the government gets away with. Most government cover-ups succeed. But every now and then it's possible to find a way to uh, basically wake readers up and make them recognize how many abuses are occurring and, and how the government has far too much power for our good or for its own good.
0: And so how did you really get to this point where you were looking so critically at government? Uh, do you have any memories from when you were a child, when you first started to question things politically? Uh, I know when I interviewed my dad a couple of years ago, that's one thing he told me. He said I was just always asking questions about whatever whatever it would be, whether it's a news story I heard on TV or the radio. I would always just say, why, why, why? Did you find yourself with, with sort of a similar quality growing up?
1: Well, maybe it was being dropped in the head as a baby. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I just – there was a – a skepticism came naturally to me. I think back, I was in the Boy Scouts and one of the highlights of my time there was going to a Boy Scout jamboree out in Idaho in 1969 when I was 12 and turning 13 years old. And it was interesting. It was the first time I was involved in a mass group of folks, 30,000 uh, people, 30,000, mostly young guys, marching along, marching to these grand assemblies and Okay, it wasn't like the Nuremberg rallies, but there was still kind of—I mean, there was a lot of dust, and it just felt utterly, you know, asphyxiating to be involved in such a mass. And the the Boy Scout troop I was in from the Shenandoah Valley hung around it an, an extra day there, in there in Idaho, and it was fun just to go out and roam on my own. The empty camps, campsites, and stuff like that—just got a such a breath of fresh air. And uh, I was raised on a mountainside, and I think I've always, always had an appreciation for open space, and maybe that's maybe a little more perceptive on times when the government's crowding people. And the government crowds people a lot, and the government tries, tries to define privacy out of existence. And if somebody complains, it means they've got something to hide. <laughs>
0: It sounds like you see a direct connection between, sort of, I guess, maybe your natural spirit to explore and uh, you know, to to find your own spaces in the world with, uh, you know, the formation of your political beliefs as you went along. Can you kind of expand on that a bit?
1: Yeah. Well, I just I was coming of age in the early seventies. I was interested in old coins, and then got interested in rare coins. And at that point, inflation was taking off. President Nixon had slapped on wage and price controls and I started, that spurred my interest in economics. So I was reading about that and realized that the the government intervention is basically a crock of shit. About the same time the Watergate started to get rolling, the Watergate scandal, and all of a sudden you see the president's top aides, you know, being kind of uh, frog-marched out. The Vietnam War was finally coming to an end, falling apart. And uh, things like Daniel Ellsberg's and the New York Times apologizing the Pentagon Papers, a lot of the other dirt that was coming out about the Vietnam War, it made it clear that the government was a damn rascal. (laughs) And, you know, you take that as your, you know, as your premise, and a lot of things are much easier to understand. But, you know, take a couple steps back. I think of, you know, there's some fun stories, you know, fun development, fun experiences growing up. I spent one summer working for the Virginia Highway Department, back when I was 16. And that was where I learned how not to shovel. You know, there was, it was great to be immersed in a government agency for a few months and to see how they operated because, you know, they were geniuses at work avoidance and to see how they did almost everything badly except painting stripes down the middle of the road. And sometimes they screwed that up too. (laughs) It was just, it it was fascinating to, to, to do that, to have that experience. And then later on, to be reading about government agencies, and to reading about reading newspaper editorials, if we do this reform, if we do that reform, then everything's going to work fine. Well, it's bullshit. I mean, you know, you go and you look at the incentives that drive government agencies and government workers, and it's like this isn't going to work very well.
0: What are those incentives that uh, you think that that skew things so much? Because a lot of things you'll hear from advocates of government agencies and and, and regulations and that sort of thing. They'll say the problem is that the the market has the the incentive to sort of screw people over. And that's why we need these government workers that are unbiased and don't have those same incentives. So what are the, the poor incentives that you would say that they have that actually lead them to do often horrible or negligent or what have you type things?
1: Well, I mean, the first baseline is it's very difficult to get fired as a government agent. I mean, for instance, uh, the uh, TSA—they've got what forty-five thousand screeners, and they're out there squeezing butt and boobs every day, and they never get fired for that. I'm not aware of any TSA agent that's been fired for using excessive force. They have fired about five hundred agents who got caught stealing, but I mean, that's kind of hard to cover up, especially if it's on video. So it's difficult to fire them once they get there. It was uh, there was an ethos with the highway department that. You weren't supposed to work too hard or else you'd kind of embarrass everybody else. <laughs> and you got that idea real quick. For other agencies, it's powerless. If you look at the Justice Department, if you look at a lot of policemen, they enjoy, you know, having the badge and the nightstick and the gun and telling other people what to do. Not all of them. There are some good, honest government officials who have not misused their power. So I'd hate to anybody but I think I was a painting with a broad brush here.
0: Uh, we'll, we'll circle back a little more to, to that conversation, especially the TSA. I do want to dig into your work on the TSA uh, a little bit as well. They are a major subject of my ire as well. So I, w- I want to circle back to something you said a little bit ago. You said that most government cover-ups succeed. And I know there are some various very uh, conspiracy-inclined fans of the show, and hey, I-, I am myself from time to time, that might latch on to that statement. So well, why do you think that government cover-ups succeed? Uh, a lot of people will say the government will take the opposite view. They'll say the government is inept, and uh, anything that kind of happens that's bad it sort of just happens because because they make mistakes they can never really you know have have a grand cover-up be successful and you actually pointed out some cases where their cover-ups were not successful earlier you know with the, the releasing of the Pentagon papers and that sort of thing so why do you believe that most government cover-ups do actually succeed
1: well you know I think it's the biggest myth in Washington is that truth will out because most of the time it you know it doesn't have enough oxygen it doesn't have enough elbows to get out as far as the um, as far as the reasons, I mean, if you think there are some folks who think that pol- people go into politics because they want to, you know, uh, shine the light of truth. No, most of them go into politics because they want power, and it's that power that drives them. And once they capture power, it'd be schizophrenic uh, on their part to, you know, to suddenly expose all these government wrongdoings and then, uh, you know, and then lose power. There's a different sense incentive for the opposing party, but that doesn't really uh, drive things, but most government cover-ups succeed. For instance, there is a Freedom of Information Act. Congress and the media says, well, we've got this FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, which guarantees that uh, citizens can ask for their records, and then uh, within 20 business days the government has to reply. Well, my experience is that FOIA stands for the fuck-off information act <laughs> because most of the agencies that I've contacted have basically said, yeah, huh. for instance, I was, uh, when I was writing the hooligan book six, seven, eight years ago, I filed FOIA requests with a bunch of different federal agencies. So I filed a FOIA with FBI. What have you got on me? The answer comes back, nothing. And I think, well, that's curious, because FBI Chief Louis Free uh, wrote a couple letters attacking Articles I wrote about Ruby Ridge, but they didn't show up in the files. Uh, likewise for the TSA, I've been whacking them for 15 years. Uh, four years ago, the chief of the agency wrote a letter attacking me. I asked for my files. That letter didn't show up. So what did he do? Uh, go to the uh, newspaper and type it on in, into an online portal so there was no record? I don't think so. Same with other agencies. I mean, they just, you know, FOIA, people get screwed all the time. And there's never any cost. And, you know, it's something which people say, okay, that's just your selfish interest, whatever. It was a huge factor for the 2016 election. Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State for four years. There were over a dozen FOIA requests to see her emails, and the State Department just basically told all those people to go screw themselves. And, you know, so they did everything that they could to withhold her records. And that helped undermine her credibility. And when the folks at WikiLeaks started uh, dumping stuff, it hurt her a lot more than it would have if she had been honest and open. But flip side is, knowing Hillary Clinton, maybe she had a lot of reasons to hide stuff.
0: Right. Right. Jim, I want to take a minute and tick back the clock a little bit and go back to how you first took this your your kind of beliefs as they were forming um, about government agencies and your interactions with them and as you started to develop your political views how did you find your 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 way taking yourself from that and moving into writing and then you know political writing specifically and eventually really working your way into being regularly published in, in many many mainstream publications despite your obviously extremely contrarian views it
1: was part of the terms of my parole. <laughs> No, it was something, you know, I, I was interested in economics and investing when I was a teenager. I was willing and dealing in coins and gold and silver. And then I started reading philosophy and other old books. And that, that kind of shifted my interests away from there. About the time I was 18, I decided to become a writer. I dropped out of college, went back for a little while, dropped out again. You spent a lot of time hitchhiking around, I spent a summer hitchhiking in Europe. Uh, just kind of getting out and seeing the world spent uh, eight, nine months living in Boston, which, you know, uh, which I, I'm, I'm trying to think of something nice to say, uh, say about Boston. And
0: damn, oh, you don't I need to, I'm a Yankee here. fan, so don't feel obliged try at so all.
1: I'm trying so hard to sound <laughs> reasonable, you know, but Boston was uh, look really pretty in the rear view mirror. There you go. Uh, there you even go. <laughs> though hitchhikers don't have rear view mirrors. <laughs> no, it, it was, it was interesting. Uh, Boston was like Boston at that point was the center of, of, uh, uh, of, um, liberals. A Democratic Party was, you know, sacred there. And to see what they had done to that state, it was such a complete mess. It was interesting. I was raised in the South, in Virginia, but there was uh, infinitely more racial hostility in Boston than I'd seen in Virginia. And it was, you know, it was homicidal at times, uh, both whites and blacks. So it was interesting to see some of the fairy tales that that the media was propagating that were just utter, complete uh, crap. But uh, there were various folks who I read that had a big influence, Milton Friedman early on, and then later on, Hayek. Hayek was probably the uh, biggest eye-opener as far as moving me towards a more solid uh, libertarian perspective. You know, wasn't too excited by his writing style, but the meat and potatoes were there. And if you could work, you know, if you could tolerate the uh, German translated into English, there are a lot of insights.
0: Very cool. And uh, how did you find yourself actually getting that door open for yourself into kind of mainstream writing, into you know working for companies like the, the USA Today, having your work published at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal? I can't imagine it's that easy for someone that's really coming in in a, in a very combative way against many establishment lines of thinking to get in there. Or may, maybe it was easy for you. I don't know. <laughs> maybe you just yeah, said, here I, I am and you're going to deal with me and that's the way it's going to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> The first article
1: I sold was a piece to the Freeman back in 1977 when I was uh, 20, 21. And then uh, was a, a year later, I did a piece beating up the postal monopoly for the Boston Globe. Aside from those, it was kind of thin pickings. I was always interested in humor writing, and I uh, tried my hand at satire. I managed to sell a satire to the New York Times when I was 22. And it was an, uh, it was a parody of the—this is about five, six years after— Congress had ended the military draft, and and but a, a lot of the, a lot of folks were kind of pissing and moaning about the volunteer media, the volunteer mi- military, and saying it was a failure. So you know we had to bring back the draft. So so what I did was write a piece about the failure of the all volunteer Congress, using the same standards that they were they were criticizing the military, uh, the volunteer military for, and showed that Congress was also a failure. And the folks at New York Times ran that. They ran another satire road six months later. I was able to kind of, you know, that helped me get into other places like Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle, and later on uh, places like Reader's Digest and much later Playboy. So, you know, it, it was just, you know... Luckily I was born with sharp elbows (laughs) and a big ego, I guess. So which came in handy because a lot of the stuff I sent out early on wasn't that good. And then later when I was sending out stuff that was better, uh, it still got turned down very often. So, you know, eh, I survived.
0: A combination of hard work and a little bit of luck is, you know, pretty much the the story at the end of the day, a lot of the times.
1: Yeah. And it was great that the New York times at that point was open to outsiders who you know didn't have a big track record the the tagline for my that first satire was uh, bovard as a writer who's currently in exile in the appalachian mountains <laughs> and maybe that helped turn them i don't know but it was great charlotte curtis was the op-ed editor there and i've always appreciated that she would you know uh let me in <laughs>
0: Hey friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests Not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C. insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in D.C. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at FreemanBeyondTheWall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. You, you mentioned your use of satire and, and, and that seemed to really help open the door for you in a lot of ways do you think that because you are taking a, a more overtly satirical approach uh, from for at the, at the beginning of a lot of, in a lot of your work that it, it sort of helps open the door because it's just seen as more entertainment to an extent uh, even though the satire is obviously tied right into your you know, your actual views
1: well most of the political writing I see is tiresome. I mean, it's finger-wagging, it's whining, it's uh, strutting, and it's like, oh, God, do I have to read this shit? So, and I was, you know, I had aspirations to bring, bring a, well, I had multiple aspirations, one of which was to be harder-hitting than other writers, and second, to also have some playful tones in there, you know, some comic relief. A lot of people said that was in really bad taste at times. I mean that there there are passages and articles I've done even the last few years that you know were not well received on Twitter. So, <laughs>
0: but, you know, it's and, hard to um, get anything to be well received on Twitter. In, in fairness, yeah, well, it's and the uh, there was a, the,
1: there was an uproar earlier this year, and it was about you know folks. You know, I'd done a piece for USA Today on a bogus survey on college hunger, and folks were like taking a single sentence out of it and just kind of you know, you know, it, it was, you know, it was like they had the uh, pitchforks and the torches. It's just like, yeah, dudes, lighten up.
0: What what so, was that sentence, if you recall, or what was the gist ah, of it? I just, I got to ah, no know now. It was, <laughs> uh, there was a, there
1: was a, it, it was a survey of, of uh, supposed food insecurity and in college students, which said that I think 36% of college students were suffering food insecurity, which, of course, the media said that they were going hungry. And then there was a breakdown of different individual groups. And the folks who did the research, which was really shoddy, were claiming that some of those groups had a hunger rate of uh, food insecurity rate of almost 50%. And I was saying, if these folks were starving, we would have heard about it. So,
0: yeah, anyhow. So ba- their basic claim was that over you know, almost 50% of college students are literally starving to death, essentially? <laughs> that was
1: actually, you know, there was a, a couple different places used the headline "starvation" in the um, for their stories about this picking up picking up on that study. And I made a simple point. I, you know, I look if you if you look at the numbers, the other surveys on college students, and you know, college students have a lot more trouble with obesity than with hunger. But that seemed unpopular. <laughs>
0: Well, the truth is often unpopular, Jim. As you know, uh, I'm curious what if you've had like any, any sort of conflicts. I know you're on the, the USA Today board of contributors. Have you had conflicts with you know people that you've worked with in the industry, colleagues, over any of your I don't know more outlandish views? I, I might not find find them outlandish, but you know some other people might.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, what's your definition of conflict? I mean, you know, there's lots of things which I've written that some editors who I've, who I've dealt with probably frown to put it mildly
0: uh you know eh
1: uh i'm still here
0: is there is there more of an attitude of it "Ah, It's just jim being jim at this point he's gonna he's gonna do what he's gonna do and say what he's gonna say and that's that's part of the deal Uh, we signed on for (laughs) i don't know
1: you know that's something the editors i work with now i guess that they're okay with 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 what i write i mean i write different on different subjects for different places so i mean there there are places in the past especially after 911 where i think uh, my views were not acceptable so there are a lot of places the doors closed after 911 partly because i would say from the get go you know the you know you uh, uh, keep an eye on bush and his people they're seizing far too much power the war in iraq is complete bullshit and it was it was obvious bullshit even before it started those were views that were not welcomed in a lot of places
0: so I got to imagine your criticism of the, of the TSA is probably tied into that uh, eventually as they came along too. So why don't we dig into that a bit? Because like I said, I, I've had a philosophical objection, of course, to the TSA from its very you know, inception, but I had a pretty negative experience with TSA once when, uh, this is maybe five or six years ago, I wrote a whole column about it. And basically, the this very short summary of it is I was given a pat down and uh, because I was opting out at that point, and the agent reached directly down my pants and, you know touch me where where uh, where you're not supposed to be touched i guess i guess you might say wow. right? without permission i guess and not in a i mean not extremely overt way but he, the way he reached down was to me you know, would be considered an assault in any any other sort of circumstance. He was touching me in, in that area, and uh, I caught, I kind of leaped back and uh, I said, "Whoa, whoa!" and and what's going on here? And I was like that. You know, I basically got into a, an argument, and I did have to complete the pat down with another agent. But I did actually, like you said, I ended up filing a formal complaint. Uh, I actually spoke to the head of the TSA at that airport that it occurred at, and uh, I wrote a couple columns about my experience. So you know, I'll, I'll link to those in today's show notes. I don't need to go too much further into detail, but uh, I'm. Kinda kind of curious when your ire, when they first took up your ire, because they are one of the subjects that you you seem to write about the most and that you seem to be the most passionate about.
1: Well, I've been writing about them for 15 years. I had a long chapter in them in the terrorism and tyranny, which came out in 2003. I mean, they were, you know, full of BS from the start. And my experience with with European airport security, they were so much more reasonable. They were not domineering. You didn't have these nitwits with epaulets on their uh, shoulders. And they weren't federal agents with the swagger that a lot of federal agents have. So they didn't have the power to get you arrested. So if you look at the surveys, the the, the internal tests from the inspector general or the TSA red team, it shows that shows that most of these agents couldn't uh, couldn't tell the difference between their butt and a hole in the ground. <laughs> and yet they have the power to be out there, you know, squeezing squeezing everything. I was coming back from Portland Thanksgiving three years ago. And I chose to opt out. And, you know, so it's, you know, okay. I assume there'd be a little extra aggravation. So I get marched around. I do the pat down. Then the guy, uh, you know, does the hand test. He says, oh, it shows positive for for explosives. And and, and I said, the fuck? And so he was saying, uh, so I said, well, which explosive? I don't know. It's a code. What does the code say? It's confidential. And, you know, it's not like I came from a, a missile range or a shooting range. Uh, but uh, because I triggered that, the, uh, they said I had to do supplemental pat-down in a private room. So they marched me off where there's no video camera. Never go to a private room with TSA. Very bad idea. But, and there was, uh, you know, there, was, there, there were three of them. And one was um, a behavior detection officer. And I assume that you're up to speed on their BS you know the, the uh, GAOs found that, that they're just completely useless; that they never catch anybody except the uh, ones in Newark, uh, New Jersey, that who were catching Mexicans, and the ones in Boston who caught black guys with the baseball caps on hat. It's backwards. all
0: part of uh, the security theater. They're not serving an actual.
1: Function. Very much, very much. And so I'm in this private room, and there's three guys, and and the uh, guys, but hey, the, uh, the one guy starts asking me questions. Why were you in Oregon? How long were you here? What did you do? And I just said, look, I'm used to better questions from behavior detection officers, okay? And I think they suspected I had an attitude problem at that point. (laughs)
0: Where would they ever get that idea?
1: (laughs) Don't know. But uh, but it was was a minor pain in the ass uh, uh, until the lead agent tried to turn my family jewels into a pancake. And at that point, it's like, okay, you guys went way the hell too far. And so I wrote about that for USA Today. I did FOIA requests. I got some other videos, posted them online, wrote about it for other places. And it was funny to funny get the statements from the agents who were involved. And it was, I, you know, some of this stuff did come out in FOIA. And I also did a piece for the Washington Times on that. And just after it happened, and there was there was a funny response from, from one of the one of the people in the press I was, was really pissed off by my article and wrote a response and he was and he was chopping at the bit to send it to the newspaper to crush me like a bug. His boss says, "No, this is a bad idea. You know, let's not pile on here. Let's just let's just move along here." But uh, it was it was complete crap what they did. And I've had similar experiences. I was traveling through Washington National Airport in March, going down Alabama. And the, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was in a bad mood. So I said, okay, I'll just go through their stupid sprain, uh, whole body scanner. And so I do that. And then the, uh, and then the, then the yuck-a-fuck screener says, we've got to do an enhanced pat down because you triggered your last. So, Wait, bullshit. I mean, what? And so he points to this almost life-size screen and he, and it shows this huge swath in my middle that uh, w- was setting off an alert. And I look and I said, well, that's my belt. And it's a small belt. I said, look, I'm happy to take it off, you know, and and go back through. Nope, nope, nope. We got to do a pat down. And so I said to him, if you jam my balls, I'm going to file a complaint. And he gets nervous. and says, I need a witness. (laughs) So he calls out calls over some other TSA uh, poncho, a guy in a white uniform. And, and, And so I'm thinking, shit, you need a witness. I need a witness. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, so we went back and forth. They eventually said, uh, said I could leave. Uh, so I'm getting my bag. And then some other TSA yucka puck comes up. There was something which alerted in the uh, carry on bag. We got to take a look. got to search through it. Oh, for Christ's sake! So I go over with this guy, and he starts pulling around. And then and then he finds it. He finds it. It was this. It was it was a simple cigar lighter. A cigar cutter, simple guillotine lighter. He says, We got to seize this. I says, Look, the TSA website says you're allowed to uh, take uh, cigar cutters and carry on. Nope, 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 you can't do it here. So I said, Fine, take the damn thing. Walked off and sat down, checked my bag, and happily there was, I had a second cigar cutter, which he missed. So, but still, it was a complete idiocy. I mean, it's a whole lot worse for women. I did a story for. USA Today last month, uh, TSA encourages people if they've got an issue to file a complaint. If you're a journalist and you want to see those complaints, they come back in four or five years, literally. They have huge delays in releasing that. So what those clients, complaints in, are
0: not available, available to journalists uh, you know, anywhere close to as they actually come in? Oh, hell no, hell or no. Or maybe at all.
1: However, however that, something that TSA cannot do is shut down Twitter. So what I did was uh, go on Twitter and do searches, TSA vagina, TSA vulva, TSA labia. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but I can find it. So, and a lot of women had had very specific complaints about how they had been sexually mistreated by TSA. And I use those for a piece in the USA Today, which was uh, being used in a court brief for a federal appellate case in Philadelphia, challenging the excessive authority of the uh, TSA agents. So maybe some good comes out of that. But no, I mean, the TSA, you know, TSA is, is a good example with an agency with so much power and they're so incompetent that they have to constantly lie to cover up their misdeeds. I mean, it's almost like breathing for them.
0: And especially you referenced this earlier, there are just... I believe tens of thousands of incidents of TSA thefts of, of TSA agents um, actually causing thefts. I don't know how many actual arrests are made in there, but I, I know it's it's just become a rampant problem. Yeah, there been
1: uh, TSA has admitted they have fired 500 agents for theft. It, that was several years ago. I don't know if they're uh, still tracking that. I don't know how many of those were were arrested and prosecuted. I would hope that they at least made uh, force the agencies force. The, the uh, agents who were stolen to to give back the laptops.
0: I, I would hope so, but uh, in, in any in any reasonable world, we would assume so. But uh, clearly, we're just not, not living in that world, it's right. TSA. right? So
1: the so the whole thought of a, a reasonable world is like, okay, you're talking to the wrong agency. So.
0: I'm curious, just what what can be done about this organization specifically, and maybe this answer applies to every uh, you know federal federal agency that's, that's wronging people. But the TSA is just one that is. To me, it's such an apparent abuse. I mean, you've seen so many videos of of elderly people being have to forced to get out of their oh. chairs and, and, and molested, and children being patted down and, and just and there's a video of it of it. And what would be anywhere in any other circumstance would be clearly seen as assault on the child, and yet in the last 15 years of its existence, it seems to so just become so accepted by the masses. I mean, I mean, I remember when a lot of the body scans and pat-downs first started, there did seem to be a bit of grumbling and sort of opposition to it, and now it just seems like everybody is just used to just going in, putting their hands up like they're a criminal, and half the time anyway, still getting molested and pat-down, and it, the, the problems with TSA range from an extreme hassle, or minor hassle, a lot, a lot of the time, all the way through actual assault, and I mean, what can be done about something that has become not only so abusive, but but so pervasive. It's just accepted. I still hear people say, well, what would we do without the TSA? It's like, where were you? I, I, you're not that old. I mean, you, you had to have been alive when I was, I, I mean, these people yeah. old, older than me that say this. So I mean, obviously what, what you're doing is combating it in the one way by trying to shed light on things. And maybe that's ultimately all we can do uh, in the short term. But how do you, is, do you see us getting rid of this agency anytime soon or seeing any changes to, for the positive?
1: Well, a couple of points. It was interesting when I was getting um, the enhanced pat down at Washington airport, Reagan airport, I mean, it was such obvious BS, but you had all these other passengers going by, clearing the screen, like, oh, what did he do wrong? Ooh, right. bad guy. And they like, screw you people. It's fascinating to me to be in a TSA line and kind of chatting people up. So so what do you think about this? Doesn't it seem like kind of a crock? And, you know, maybe a third of people say, yeah. And, and, and then there's folks like, well, I'm grateful to them. I mean, you know, this is a price of freedom. There was back in... 2010 at the time when the the whole body scanner started coming in massively, there was a, uh, some of the conservatives were saying, well, the TSA pat-down is just a freedom fondle. And uh, there was a senator from uh, Missouri, McCaskill, who got knocked off happily. Uh, She referred to TSA love pats. It's like, well, you know, that's okay. If you're into BDSM, maybe. But uh, as far as what we get mean the simple answer is to privatize. Privatize, make them liable you know, to uh, take away their power. I mean, it's possible with airport security. In uh, Most of the advanced nations in the world don't have federal agents doing airport security. I mean, it was a horrible idea in 2002. It's still a horrible idea. It hasn't worked. It would be great if if there was a way to ensure that every time a member of Congress took a flight, that they'd get the enhanced pat-down. You know, do that in six weeks, the agency would be out of power.
0: I mean, I would recommend to anyone that that thinks TSA is is reasonable, just start traveling a bit through the rest of the world and see how things are done. It really is the most intrusive, overly intrusive, unnecessary experience to travel through American airports. And I know I've met people overseas that just they won't even take flights through the United States anymore just because of what they had to deal with. Obviously, for them, it's worse than TSA. It's also dealing with customs and that sort of thing, which is, I'm sure, a whole new uh, layer of harassment and hassle uh, for a lot of people that come through this country. But yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like it's something that has become very much accepted. I agree with your view, of course, of, of making them private and and what have you. But what you'll hear from a lot of people is, but don't you remember 9-11? That's what happened in 9-11. That's what happened in 9-11. Or they'll reference the shoe bomber. How how can we combat all these myths that the only way to stop these things are to have a one overriding federal agency that, that just watches over the whole thing to make sure that nothing slips through the system, which, of course... Everything we all, you of course, know about all the reports of you know guns coming through and, and that sort of thing when they try to test the system. Anybody that follows this knows that it's bullshit anyway. But I, I just don't know how we can seem to actually communicate that to people because it doesn't seem to get through a lot of the times.
1: Yeah, well, as far as, as far as a shoe bomber, TSA didn't do shit on that. Right. Now, it was private private people on that flight that disarmed that guy. Right. It's interesting seeing how people feel about TSA is a good index of servility. And it's very discouraging to see so many people so docile, just just kind of folks who are just happy to bend over and squeal. And because if you don't have enough self-respect to say cut this crap out, then if someone's you know putting their hands on your body in the most intimate places, then where are you going to draw the line? It's like, come on, people, take a stand. So I've I it but it has been disappointing. There's not been a hell of a lot more backlash, so
0: Well, like I said, uh, like we both have said, all all you can really do a lot of the times with these injustices, you're just one person, I'm just one person. All we can do in our various ways to vent, whether it's through your columns, uh, for me through these podcasts, is to talk about it and try to spread the word, so to speak, on this and all the other many, many injustices that we see out there and hope we can fire enough other people and then you know sort of start a chain reaction from there and change the world. That's why we're here, I suppose. Jim, one more question I want to ask you before I let you go. Uh, Since you've been in this industry for so long and especially so many of the people that we interact with that become interested in this podcast, uh, I hear all the time, you know, how can we start a podcast and that kind of thing. I also hear, you know, all the time, what would you say to someone who, you know, wants to start blogging and writing about whether it's libertarian ideas or politics or what have you. And especially today with how the media is changing so much, what advice would you give them to get that work published and get it out there sort of in a broader sense, as opposed to just, you know, sitting on a blog that 30 people read, how can people try to use their knowledge and, you know, their developing beliefs and their Developing skills at writing and actually get it in front of the masses, like you've been able to do so successfully.
1: It's a good question. I, I don't have an easy answer. Podcasts are are uh, taking off, and it's great to see the enthusiasm and a lot of people learning from a libertarian podcasts like yours. As far as writing, uh, you know, there are some good editors out of, there. Is there is a lot of animosity towards uh, uh, libertarian views in some places and by some editors? I mean, there's you know, it's almost. There are certain types of, uh, well, it's it's not just bias, bias uh, against uh, libertarians. It's almost a bias against anyone who takes a hard-line view against government abuses. There are a, a lot of people, uh, left-wingers, or are not libertarian, but have faced some of the same challenges, again, their ideas out there. So, uh, And the same is true of left-wing libertarians, of course. So I don't have an easy answer. I mean, you just uh, write well and find good editors and have some luck. Right. So.
0: A little luck always helps. Uh, Jim, it's been such a pleasure having you on. Uh, I'm sure I'd love to have you on again down the road because you write about so many you know, relevant topics. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything you can uh, obviously let everybody know how they can find your work? Uh, I know you have your website uh, where a lot of your stuff is published as well as, of course, in all these various publications you write for. And feel free to plug away. I know you've done 10 books. I don't know if you haven't got any more in the pipeline, but feel free to uh, plug away on anything you've got coming down the road.
1: Hey, thanks. I'm starting to do some podcasts now, okay. mostly for the Future Freedom Foundation. They are available on my blog and my website, JimBovard.com. Trying to work in some humor, telling some funny stories. Had one a week or so ago about when I was uh, traveling illegally to East Germany and I got caught and went through a three or four hour interrogation. And happily, I was able to bullshit my way out of it. So,
0: <laughs> bullshitting is a very, very helpful skill to have. <laughs> Well, it's a good way to stay
1: out of trouble sometimes. So,
0: great! And I believe the website is—is is it Jim Bovard dot something dot com? <laughs> .com. Yes. I just wanted That's to confirm that. One. You never know. There's so many dot whatever's nowadays. You That's never know. True. That's true. <laughs> Jim Bovard.com. Be sure to check out all of his work. It's been a pleasure, and it's uh, and, and keep up all the great work, Jim, and keep on roaring. Hey,
1: thanks for your kind words. Thanks for having me on your program.
0: Thanks a lot. It's been a blast. <laughs> All right, my itty-bitty liberty kitty cats, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Jim Bovard, a fellow hater of the TSA. Probably my one of my least favorite federal agencies of all time. So I appreciate that. We share a kindred spirit there. And of course, on our general ire of various federal agencies, everything that Jim writes about, we'll link to his writings as well as several of the articles that we discussed today over at the show notes for today's show at lionsofliberty.com slash 379. This is indeed the 379th edition of this very podcast that I have been producing for over five years. Of course, it is no longer just me. We are the original libertarian variety. Show that means you know got me on Mondays, but you also get Brian every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And John wraps things up every single Friday with his hard hitting, riveting, yet very inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You gotta hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode on this here Lions of Liberty podcast. And to get even more out of it and to support the show, please do head over to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash Liberty. One more thing I want to mention. Don't forget, we do have an Amazon affiliate link. We don't mention it nearly enough, but with Christmas season here and shopping for people for the holidays, I do hope you will please head through that Amazon link, which you can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. Anything you buy on Amazon it's so- so easy. You just click your button to send your gifts out. That's how I do everything nowadays because I'm very impersonal like that. But if you send your gifts through Amazon and do it through our Amazon affiliate link, we'll get a little kickback and it won't cost you an extra dime. So that's a very very, very easy way to help support the show. Until next time, kids. Live long! And live free.